This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association and is hosted by Dr. Victor Nitti, Chair of the Office of Education. I'm Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and with me today for this podcast is Dr. Dan Lin. He is Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology and the Pritt Family Endowed Chair in Prostate Cancer Research at the University of Washington. So Dan, as you know, castrate-resistant prostate cancer uh, has had many new treatments uh, over the last several years, and that's why I thought uh, it was a really uh, important topic. So without any further ado, I would like to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Dan Lin. Well, thank you, Vic, and it's a pleasure to talk about the very recent developments in advanced prostate cancer and highlight perhaps where the future will go as we walk down uh, the interesting road in treating advanced prostate cancer by urologists more and more. So the first question I'd like to ask is, what about the treatment of newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer? Well, great, great and very timely uh, place to start, which is the newly diagnosed patients. I think that with the recent USPSTF recommendations, it's already been shown that we will be diagnosing more and more men further along the spectrum of prostate cancer, uh, specifically metastatic disease, patients coming in with their first ever PSA of, uh, let's say, 100 or 200, or, or I saw a man today this morning with a PSA of 1,100, first ever PSA, with widely metastatic disease. And that brings into question what we as urologists have done in the, in the past and then now the emerging data showing the early use of chemotherapy uh, with hormonal deprivation therapy is now standard of care. So starting early chemotherapy right at the same time of hormone, um, hormonal uh, uh, ablation, so to speak, um, is now the standard of care for the treatment of um, um, newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. Now, is this widely known? Is this practiced by most urologists? Well, I hope that it's, it will be more and more widely known as the data mature. But as you know, um, the cornerstone of, of treatment for metastatic prostate cancer in its hormone-sensitive state has been androgen deprivation therapy, obviously dating back to the Nobel Prize winning discovery by Huggins of hormonal blockade and regression of metastatic disease. But about now, 10 year, a little over 10 years ago, chemotherapy, we started using docetaxel chemotherapy for hormone resistant disease. But now there are two studies. One is called Charted. Um, it was an ECOG trial led by Chris Sweeney. And then there's another one called Stampede. Uh, led by many investigators, but Nick James has really championed this. Um, they've both been published in New England Journal and so forth, uh, uh, now showing that in a level one clinical trial, phase three clinical trial, that took newly diagnosed metastatic men and randomized them to hormone deprivation therapy versus, which is standard of care, versus hormone deprivation, deprivation therapy plus docetaxel chemotherapy, showing significant survival advantage so significant that now our NCCN guidelines and all other guidelines have now endorsed the early use of chemotherapy in certain subsets of patients, which we can uh, certainly discuss. That's what I was going to ask him. Does it matter 
for example, if the patient has uh, low versus high volume disease? Yeah, yes, it does. In, in fact, at least at this point, it does. Let's say, I think as the data mature, we'll see that it will and probably be indicated for any volume of disease. But currently, as it's stated now, and one looks at the charted trial, uh, when one looks at the difference between high volume and low volume disease, the high volume disease certainly was statistically significant. And this is not just a little bit. This was a hazard ratio of 0.6 and the median overall survival advantage in those high risk uh, being 17 months, which is a year and a half more of survival in the high risk patients. Now the low risk patients, I'll say that many of them had not reached the median survival. In other words, half of the men fortunately hadn't, hadn't passed on from prostate cancer, but it, the hazard ratio was also 0.63, suggesting that with more time, more follow-up, more events, that this now that will actually become a significant um, uh, a subgroup of patients on which to give early uh, early chemotherapy. And how does one define high volume disease? Yeah, so in that trial, I think there's a there's it's a, it's it's somewhat somewhat subjective. I think that we all see it if it's widespread bony metastasis, of course. But in that trial, they were describing high high risk disease being absolute number of metastasis in, in addition to the absolute number of metastasis, there was also the issue of uh, if there was any metastasis that was outside the, the, the axial skeleton. So what they said by volume was presence of visceral metastasis or four or more bony metastasis with at least one metastatic disease focus outside the axial skeleton. So it is a little bit, I admit, uh, uh, it's a clinical trials definition. I think all of us that sure. see these patients sort of know what you see when you, when you see it. What about um, comorbidities? Are there any uh, comorbidities that would um, make one choose or not choose to add uh, docetaxel to uh, androgen deprivation therapy? Yeah, that's, that's another, uh, I think it's very relevant to understand the the patient's background or disease and if, in other words if they are um elderly and this is i'm speaking somewhat for my medical oncology colleagues many of us as you know practice in a setting where we're so closely aligned with our uh academic medical oncologists that we treat these patients together but what i've seen from them and what we've seen in our patients and how we practice is the patients that have uh, either a very fast pace of disease uh, perhaps uh, elderly and, and, and not being able to withstand docetaxel chemotherapy, they might be tried on hormonal therapy alone. So I, I know that there are those considerations um, that might impact certainly quality of life, but also um, that are treatment considerations within the paradigm of can they withstand a systemic chemotherapy treatment constitutionally, um, that being uh, all the side effects from the treatment itself. You know, you just mentioned quality of life, and um, what I was wondering is, is the uh, survival benefit, um, the, the survival benefit you've described, do we see uh, a similar uh, uh, impact uh, on quality of life with uh, docetaxel plus androgen deprivation versus androgen deprivation alone? Uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I think that there's emerging data. So the the data that's been published have not addressed fully the quality of life aspects. But when one looks at some of the emerging data, and there was just last week at ASCO 
in Chicago, there was a, a an analysis of the chartered trial by Quality of Life, and it was a very wonderful, elegant presentation of the quality of life decrement that occurs initially with docetaxel. And I think the soundbite there is that if one compares quality of life at about the three-month mark after after being on either hormonal therapy alone or hormonal therapy with chemotherapy, the with chemotherapy group was worse on a quality of life basis. And that's being uh, everyday activities of life and so forth. But when one looks at the quality of life at the 12-month mark, and remember, the median survival in this study was in the 30-plus months. So this was uh, one year into f four to five years uh, in the high-volume uh, disease group. So at the 12-month mark, the quality of life was actually better in the group that was receiving chemotherapy. So it's, a, it's a definitely a relevant issue that we all have to balance quality of life with uh, the side effects of systemic chemotherapy. Great. Well, that, that's a great summary of uh, where we're at now um, with the patient with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. You know, I know that one of the, uh, the things that often comes up to my attention as the chair of the Office of Education and as we plan on um, plan our educational programs is, um, is, is the concept of sequencing agents that are used in in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer and which agent to use when. So I thought maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the options and how, how the mechanism of, mechanisms of action of these agents and as best as one can with the data that's available, maybe you can give us an idea of how you like to use these agents under various circumstances. Okay, that's the, again, I think that you hit it right there on the head that I, I don't think I've been to a conference, a cancer conference, that this topic has, and many of them that the Office of, of Education has has obviously sponsored and, and uh, designed, that, that many, almost every relevant prostate cancer uh, uh, conference and workshop has had, a, has had a talk that discusses this exact issue of sequencing. Um, and I think I'll just start with saying that the, the major relevant ones that most talk about the, the what sequence is the, the hormonal agents, that being abiraterone, mainly versus enzalutamide, because they're sort of in the same class. There are others that discuss perhaps radium, uh, which is a radionucleotide um, that really attacks bone disease, and then the cipulosal T immunotherapy, although I think that those are very discrete subsets of men. And I can just say right off the bat that the cipulosal is for the perhaps lower pace of disease, perhaps earlier in the disease, and clearly not as symptomatic as the other drugs, whereas radium is demanding bone pain. So I think that though, that's a difference in those that make those the sequencing issue less of a concern, which brings me to really the meat of what I think you and I will talk about over the next few minutes, which is which to use first, enzalutamide or abiraterone. And I think that getting getting just a, a brief a brief few minutes uh, a couple couple minutes on the action. Obviously, uh, they're homo both hormonal agents. Enzalutamide blocks the androgen receptor, very similar to biclutamide. Um, it, it inhibits the binding of the testosterone to the androgen receptor, thus inhibiting it, it being translocated to the nucleus and then all the action. Whereas abiraterone is very different. It really blocks the mechanism or the enzymes that make 
the uh, the the androgens. So it it blocks the SIP uh, SIP pathway from cholesterol to testosterone. So they're they're very different agents, but the bottom line is the goal is the same thing to block um, androgen receptor activation. So when do you use one versus the other? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think that there's, so there's no right answer. Um, in fact, if one looks at NCCN guidelines, I keep bringing those up or the AUA guidelines, there's no uh, a clear right answer. I, I can say one, one thing, there's a couple points. One is that it's pretty clear that, that just because a patient eventually becomes not responsive to one of the agents, does not mean they will not respond to the other agent. In other words, that we've done some nice work in Heather Chang and Evan Yu at the University of Washington should really be credited from this, and they've published this just last year. Um, and they, they really looked at first enzalutamide and the response of patients to enzalutamide after chemotherapy or after abiraterone or after both. And they really found that even despite in patients having received abirat prior abiraterone, the response to enzalutamide was actually fairly robust still um, in as many as 60% of patients still having a PSA response. And so I think that the first consideration is that both agents can be used in sequence. It's not as if if, if one uh, if a patient doesn't respond to one eventually that they're not allowed to have the other one. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing that, that I that again, many of us see, and I see my medical oncologist, and when we discuss these patients, is this issue of toxicity, because abiraterone uh, has some hepatic dysfunction issues. There can be fluid excesses, and abiraterone needs to be needs to be prescribed with prednisone, and thus one can imagine if there's a diabetic patient, the hyperglycemia issues can come into play if, uh, if the patient also has to take prednisone as well as being a diabetic. With enzalutamide, there, there might be some fatigue issues, particularly, particularly in the elderly that uh, have been considerations and have been written about widely, um, as well as this perhaps somewhat theoretical, but there is uh, this issue and that has been brought up before about seizure risk. Nevertheless, I, I certainly think that um, that both those considerations come into play. And the last thing I'll mention is um, that, that I think that we all consider this pace of disease issue. If, if a patient just unfortunately blows right through the first agent, one has to wonder whether one wants to try another hormonal derived agent instead of going straight to chemotherapy if the chemo if that patient has not had chemotherapy before. So there are issues about pace of disease, there are issues about toxicity, and lastly, uh, luckily, uh, uh, patients can respond to both. So it, just practically speaking, if a patient now is treated, is now treated um, in a contemporary manner, they have newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer, they um, undergo androgen deprivation therapy, they, along with docetaxel, and then there's evidence of progression. That's where, for the most part, one of these two other agents would come into play? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think that, you know, I'll tell you, Vic, I think that when I, what I've seen, I think others would concur with this uh, just in practice patterns, is that it's a, a bit in terms of, of what the clinician is comfortable using. I think that the first to market in this case was abiraterone. Um, 
and and with prednisone. And then the second to the market was enzalutamide. And I think urologists might resonate more with enzalutamide because we've been giving biclutamide for decades and before that flutamide. Um, and we understand that mechanism. It's very comfortable to us, uh, whether it's pre-chemo or post-chemo, whereas abiraterone has a little bit more uh, of differences in monitoring and so forth. And so, uh, but I've seen not only locally, but regionally and nationally when we when we talk about these in, in, in our sessions, that it's perhaps individualized biases that don't have clear scientific rationale. Um, luckily, as I said before, the both these drugs have unbelievable responses and have really changed the way we treat our patients. That's great. All right, now I know one topic that you wanted to talk about is um, um, splice variants in castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Yes, I think that you know, a couple final tops in in our in our uh, discussion and podcast would be some of the emerging concepts as well as uh, the the data that's been again put out in the New England Journal and others on um, the newer drugs or maybe the newer mechanisms. One of them is this AR story. Um, it is still an evolving story. There's still some controversy. I'll be very transparent about that, but I think we all realize that. Patients respond variably to these drugs. There, you'll see dramatic responders, and then you'll see those that, as I said before, blow right through these drugs, and one has to wonder why, what is it about the tumor, or what is it about the person, and it might be a little bit of both. So I'll just briefly just introduce the AR story um, and the AR splice variants. I think that we all recognize the androgen, androgen receptors where the testosterone and the dihydrotestosterone bind, and they bind to a certain binding domain uh, called the C-terminal ligand. And there are these splice variants, and you'll hear more and more about them. One's the ARV7, they call it variant 7, uh, and one is called variant 567. And then there are all these mutations in the, in the androgen receptor. What those are, they many of them have lost this binding domain, so there's nowhere for the testosterone to bind, but interestingly enough, they're continually turned on. They don't actually need the testosterone to turn themselves, turn on the androgen receptor and on all the downstream effects of it, like growth of prostate tissue and prostate cancer. They're just constitutively active. They're on all the time, um, regardless of whether there's, uh, whether there's any testosterone around. Additionally, they can't be blocked by many of the traditional blocking agents. I mean, many of the blocking agents bind right where the testosterone binds. So um, if there's no region for the enzalutamide to bind, is it going to really have an effect? So I think that, uh, that th that's the androgen receptor variant story. We found actually that these variants increase as men go through their, their treatment with prostate cancer. So men that are heavily pretreated have slightly higher levels of these variants. And maybe these variants are what's causing some of our patients respond so well to the agents and other pa other patients not to respond to almost at all. Now, any future directions in clinical trials that might help us solve some of these questions? Yeah, I think there there are. I mean, I I think that there was there was a there was one reported small institutional clinical trial from Hopkins and and Emmanuel Antonarakis published it in the journal, just showing that if a patient had this these variant androgen receptor that was detected even in their circulating tumor cells, so just draw a tube of blood, you can imagine 
draw a tube of blood and you find these variants and it really predicted the response to abiraterone or, or enzalutamide. And so now there are other trials underway that I know that are in the development phase still that will stratify men up front, um, either up front or post hoc after the randomization to newer agents uh, by their receptor variant status, such that you can imagine that perhaps a man either won't get in the trial or if they're, uh, or, or the opposite, they'll only be in the trial if they have the variant and they, they're, they're randomized to a novel drug that might target the variant. So I think that that's basically, I think, where we're going in the future. Right? And, I, and I do hope that we become more personalized and precise about how we treat our patients. Personalized medicine certainly seems to be uh, where the future lies, and uh, it, it does appear uh, that in, in prostate cancer and uh, metastatic prostate cancer uh, as well, that uh, that that uh, should hold true, and and we'll see what happens as uh, as we see uh, more clinical trials uh, and and the data emerging from those. Um, I know another thing that you wanted to talk about was uh, sequencing data uh, and the impact on clinical outcomes. Yes, I think that it's it's in a very similar vein to to what we just talked about with the AR splice variant story. However, uh, there there now are there are now are a, a lot of data now, and again these are these are somewhat emerging, but they've already been published. And again, one was published recently in the New England Journal uh, by Johan de Bono's group. Uh, and the first author was Matteo um, on a on a PARP inhibitor, and so. I think that we're we're now learning that if we not only sequence the germline DNA, so the, the the inherited DNA in a patient, but also that patient's tumor tissue, that we might be able to gain insight on either drugs that we already have available or drugs that we need to develop. And so I'll give you an example. The example is the that many of us are involved in this stand up to cancer effort. There are a couple so-called dream teams on the one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast that have discovered that in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer that there are a large number of patients, maybe as much as uh, one in four patients that harbor these DNA repair alterations. And it's one in four patients have these alterations that might be receptive to a agent that really acts on that DNA repair pathway, uh, the so-called PARP inhibitors. Um, and so one of one of the uh, one of the the trials that was recently published was again a relatively small trial, but it took men and it uh, and it gave them this drug Laparib, and again this was published in the New England Journal and the the men that responded the best to the Laparib by far statistically significant but also clinically significant uh, were those men that harbored these these uh, these DNA repair uh, defects. So it's an example of taking a population of men and finding uh, which ones, in this case, one in four men had these, these defects, and those men that had the defects actually were very re receptive and responsive to a new agent, uh, a so-called PARP inhibitor. I think that's where, where we're very likely uh, going to go. Um, we, we here at the University of Washington, and I know many other places, but I'm just giving an example here, that if we do see emergence of these markers, and they, these, are, these are things like BRCA2, uh, copy loss. So these are fairly common, uh, um, uh, at least commonly heard of mutations, particularly in breast cancer, that we're, we're giving them uh, instead of uh, hormonally directed agents, perhaps more novel chemotherapy 
um, such as docetaxel, maybe even with carboplatin. Dan, the last thing I just wanted to talk about uh, as we finish up is um, with the agents that we have, is there anything new going on? Any emerging concepts or, or um, uh, new treatments or new ways of using some of the treatments that we already have? Sure. Um, I think that, again, at, the re at some of our recent meetings in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, um, at the AUA, of course, at, that were some that were announced or at ASCO or at the GU Cancer Symposium sponsored by the ASCO, ASTRO, and the SUO. Um, one, we, we hear more and more about some perhaps novel ways on that, but that, that I feel like all of us have been doing anyway, but now they're in randomized clinical trials. So I'll give you an example. One is this idea of using intermittent docetaxel versus continuous. So perhaps instead of giving several months of docetaxel in a row and then stopping, um, what happens if we just give docetaxel a month at a time and maybe a month off and so forth? Um, and there was a randomized clinical trial that looked at so-called intermittent versus continuous docetaxel, really showing um, non-inferior results. When I, when I talk to my medical oncologist, because I myself do not actually prescribe the docetaxel, many of them said, yeah, well, we've been doing that for years, but now it's really shown that's, uh, that it's established. Um, and so that's actually a, a move forward. I think some of the other other areas have been, again, looking at various doses of cabazitaxel or higher or, or more second line chemotherapy and looking that um, can we use lower dose? Because I think in, and as you know, from, from all the work um, at, with the AUA, looking at the cost um, that's involved, if, if one can, if one can administer high quality care with, with lower cost, uh, obviously that's value. And so there have been many studies, and again, these are randomized clinical trials, perhaps looking at lower doses of cabazitaxel versus the standard dose, showing non-inferior results, better toxicity, and of course that would translate to lower costs. Um, and so I think that those are, those are two examples um, uh, of emerging concepts in the treatment of, of later stage CRPC. You know, Dan, my final question to you is, um, you know, urologists are, are clearly uh, becoming more and more involved uh, in the treatment of these patients. Uh, in many cases, uh, these have been um, our patients for, uh, for a long time. And now um, as the treatments for, for uh, castrate resistant prostate cancer have um, become uh, I, I guess I would say easier to deliver. Um, urologists are um, becoming more involved in that, um, uh, in the delivery of those treatments. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, um, you know, how involved do you think your, the urologist should be as opposed to um, just sending these folks on to uh, medical oncologists? That's a great question. And with, um, I, I think in short, we should be, incredibly involved now and there are several reasons why I think that um, number one we understand the disease uh, I think that we and not to say that our medical oncologists do not by any means I'm saying we understand the disease through our heritage of, of treating these patients um, not only with local therapy such as prostatectomy or TURP or otherwise but also again as I mentioned before our birthright through 
uh, you know, uh, ADT and Charles Huggins and the effect of castration on advanced cancers of the prostate. Um, and I, and so in, in first of all, we, we intimately understand the disease. The second is that we're the ones that see the patients um, and they trust us. They've put our, many of them have put their lives in our hands initially for the initial primary treatment, but now they trust us to go forward and they really wanna know what, I, what we wanna do. As I said before, I work in a, in a very vibrant community where our medical oncologists are, are excellent and supreme and, I, and we rely on each other. But many of them, I will say that many of my patients still come back to me and say, so-and-so wants to give me this drug, what do you think? Um, my reply is usually yes, because I agree with them, but I think that they rely on us quite a bit. And the last thing that I would say, the last reason that I think urologists should be involved is because we're capable of doing it. As you just said, therapy is becoming orally delivered, easier tolerated, lower side effects. We should do it because we can do it. My major question to end with perhaps is rhetorical, which is, will we take the time to do it? Because the culture of urology has not normally been monitoring blood glucoses and LFTs and managing the patients. Our, we, we like to be in the OR, and I think culturally that's why many urologists pick urology. And I still think that's wonderful. I think that there are ways that through mid-level, what we call advanced practice providers, such as PAs and ARNPs, as well as a, a very healthy uh, dialogue and collaboration with our medical oncology colleagues and alignment with them that we can do this all together as a team with the patient in the center of that team. And I, I think that should, that should stand as an excellent uh, closing message. Well, Dan, I, I wanna thank you for uh, taking the time to do this podcast uh, on this uh, really important topic. I know you've been involved with uh, the Office of Education in uh, planning and directing some of our uh, future courses on this very same topic. Um, I know you've put a lot of work uh, into this, and I think it's really important for our members. So um, thank you very much for this podcast uh, and for all the work that you've done for us uh, on this really important topic. If anybody has any feedback uh, on this podcast, or has some suggestions for topics for future podcasts, we would, uh, we'd love to hear from you and you can reach us at education at auanet.org.